Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. As a humanist, my faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. If you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, this podcast is for you. On this week's episode, I talk with Eric Steinhardt, a professor of philosophy at William Patterson University. He's also a member and frequent contributor to the Spiritual Naturalist Society, which were both contributing writers, and the place where I first encountered Eric's work. Eric, like myself, is interested in mystical experience, not just any kind, the mystical experience of atheists. We don't interpret mystical experience as supernatural events. In our eyes, mystical experience are psychological phenomena that many normal people, including non-believers, may have at some point in their lives. Those in a religious tradition interpret these events as divine in nature. Eric and I discuss how non-believers experience and interpret these events. And while we disagree about some of the qualities of mystical experience, both of us have a deep appreciation for the importance that they have. We've both experienced these states in our lives and we feel it's important to take them seriously and give them the attention and the respect that they deserve. And now, my conversation with Eric Steinhardt. Eric Steinhardt, welcome to Reenchantment. Glad to be here. Today, we are going to be talking about something that is dear to both our hearts, but about which many people might not uh, know much about, which is atheistic mysticism. So, I guess mysticism may be the place to start, because I don't think many people have a very good idea of what mysticism is. For me, the, the place where I got really introduced to mystical experience is the work of William James and his Varieties of Religious Experience. It has been a seminal work in the study of, of religion. And James talks about mystical experience, and he basically has four markers for what a mystical experience looks like. One of them is the experience is ineffable. You can't communicate it with words, or if you try, it somehow fails to meet the mark. It's noetic, by which he means the revel- it has a sort of revelation. It's a, it's a revelatory experience where you feel like the curtain is pulled back and you see reality for what it truly is. It's usually brief, it's transient, usually lasts for maybe half an hour to two hours, something in that range. And he says it's usually passive as well, so you can't really will yourself to have a mystical experience. There are certain things you can do to increase the likelihood through various spiritual practices, but overall it's something that comes naturally from almost like you are possessed by some force from outside of you. And there, there's been a lot of debate over the nuances of, of uh, mystical experience. But I think William James is a good place to start, particularly because his, he's been so influential in the study of religious experience and mystical experience in particular. I think what could also be useful to listeners is 
maybe a couple of examples of what a mystical experience might be like. Do you have any uh, on hand or off the top of your head? (laughs) On hand, yeah, sure. First of all, I mean, I used to have them fairly often myself, and we can talk about that a little bit more in detail. In my case, as I suspect in lots of cases, they were migraine auras. And if you start to look at books on migraine, which since I have migraines and I have migraine with aura, lots of them will talk about how lots of classically described mystical experiences seem very much like migraine auras. So we can't tell whether Blaise Pascal, he had this enormous mystical experience, um, transformed him. And he talked about fire, fire, everything's covered with fire. And some of the medieval mystics, I think, if I recall, I think it was Hildegard von Bingen who painted images from her mystical experiences and things like that. And um, there were others besides her, but many of their descriptions sound very much like migraine auras, the kinds of things they see. What is a migraine aura exactly? Yeah, migraine auras, and and by the way, by saying that the the, the mystical experience is triggered by migraine aura, in some cases, I wouldn't mean that doesn't mean to discount it in any way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lessen its significance. You're saying that's right. It doesn't it doesn't change its significance, its meaning. It, if there's any truth to it, it's not going to change its truth. I mean, whenever if I just look at a at a red apple, right? There's something going on in my brain. And you could, you could say, okay, well, that's going on in your brain. Well, that doesn't mean, that doesn't lessen or diminish the fact that I'm perceiving a red apple, right? It doesn't change that at all. So I just, I want to be very clear about that because especially among non-theists, among atheists, there's a tendency to say things like, oh, it's just psychological. Like, yeah, you're having a migraine aura, so it doesn't mean anything. Sure. Or it's like, it's all just chemical signals, you know, it's, it's explaining it and in a sense, trying to explain it away versus what you're saying is there, it's an experience and it, its meaning is not reduced just because we know how it works. Yeah, or it's not, I mean, the perception of the red apple, if you just reduce it to neurochemical events, fine. It's still a perception of a red apple. It still means what it means, has the significance that it has. If there's any truth to it, it still has the truth that it has. Any any experience that we have is accompanied by brain states. So saying, yeah, so, you know, or taking uh, five grams of uh, magic mushrooms or 500 uh, micrograms of LSD, yeah, things happen to your brain. I mean, so that so migraine aura or psychedelic experience or however mystical experiences happen, they involve changes in your brain. So I think it's real clear to, because I've read some atheists writing about mystical experiences and say like, oh, look, it's just in your head. You, your, your brain went haywire for a few minutes and, and you had to, and it doesn't mean anything. And I think that's that's absolutely wrong. I mean, of course, to say that it is in your brain doesn't mean it has truth either. Sure. But you can't just dismiss it because it's a brain event. I mean, I don't dismiss the fact that I move my legs and walk to my car. Oh, that's just a brain event. <laughs> like, well, or you or you fall in love. It's like, yeah, it's all hormones and chemical signals. You know, it's it's not really real, but it it, it is. It's meaningful for us on a deep level. Right. So, so the migraine aura stuff, is, I mean, people's migraine auras vary enormously. Uh, 
but sort of classical ones have several several components. One component, which is sort of more salient for the mystical dimension, is that you get uh, a serotonin dump, right? Sort of like actually, it's thought now that all the platelets, which are the major carriers of serotonin in your body, just dump all their serotonin into your bloodstream like really rapidly in a matter of, of like microseconds. And you get this surge of serotonin, which I can assure you just feels like the most transcendental bliss. <laughs> like everything is perfect in this superlative, unsurpassable way. The purest joy that you could ever experience is this reality being itself is pure bliss now 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 is this is this different than a regular migraine because this doesn't sound at all like a regular migraine <laughs> well the bad parts come soon <laughs> and again people have very 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 migraine is a series of you know has different symptomatic manifestations so often what happens with aura so this first serotonin stage is kind of a prodrome and then if you have auras, usually they're going to be visual disturbances. You see things that are not quite hallucinations, but you may see the black sun open in your visual field, the black spot just open, ringed with fire, or sort of crenellated shapes that appear. The fire motif is often really common. It's often also associated with a serotonin surge. That's very similar to psychedelics, right? They are the serotonergic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, and DMT. If you look at the artworks people produce from those, there are often, you know, things are rimmed with fire, with flames, often because of the kind of serotonergic activation of certain, certain neurons deep in the visual system, right? You, you see, so, so that fire is common, with this. Yeah. I've got a pulled up from right here an account by Maurice Buck about his experience. He also talks about fire. He was saying I was in a state of quiet, almost passive enjoyment, and all at once, without warning, I found myself wrapped around as if it were by a flame-colored cloud. And for an instant I thought of fire, some sudden conflagration in the great city. The next I knew that the light was within me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so if I'm hearing that, I'm going to say this guy had a migraine aura, and which again, I don't believe me, I do not mean to discount that. These are significant events. When something significant happens in your brain, right? The question is, what does it, what does it point to? What does it refer to? I mean, I generally think that all mental events, all brain events, refer. All right. Otherwise, you get into this really nasty problem, insoluble problem of trying to draw, draw a line between the ones that refer and the ones that don't refer. Uh, what do you mean by refer? They're about something. They have aboutness. Mm -hmm. right? Mental okay. events have aboutness. They're, that's the nature of a mental event. They have intentionality. They're oriented or aimed at something in reality. So it could be you feel this intense experience and it could be related to what, for example? A sense of connection with with nature, a connection with your past, with your identity, a dissolution of identity? Well, I think, I think that the, the question of what do these events, whether they're migraine auras or drug-induced or some other kind of event, right, what they mean, that might be like something we can talk about uh, later here. But right now, it's probably best with your William James kind of reference to talk about like what are just the phenomenal characteristics 
characteristics of the uh, experiences themselves. And that light, right, I mean, this is also something you get with the sort of serotonin surge. You get everything, your visual system becomes intensely activated. Everything is ringed with fire, living flames. But that light that, I mean, I've had those kinds of experiences where suddenly, like, the, the uh, one I'm thinking of, the bliss, and I'm, I'm in my room then, and I'm thinking, like, I'm blinded. I'm just, I'm blinded by, by this light that is more brilliant than the sun. And I'm thinking, like, why is it so bright in here? Am I outside? I'm not outside. I'm, I'm sitting in a dark room. And sort of knowing that I'm going to have a migraine, I'm going to be very photophobic, in fact. And th- this light, the intensity of this light is often very painful. And this is where now we, we sometimes head down into the, to the very painful aspect of a migraine. But that's often when people will have the visual disturbances, right? To see parts of their visual field will simply become black. And because it, in a certain sense, it's because all those neurons in the visual cortex have shut down. And yet that black, those black holes will be ringed with the most, with brilliant fire. It's, it's, it's astonishing. And, you know, of course the, and people often have, and I would have too, uh, experiences of depersonalization and derealization, right? That you're no longer in the world. Yeah. Or, or some people uh, describe ego death, the sense that your I, your sense of self dissolves and you become, you have this experience of union with the natural world around you. Yeah, I mean, sure. So these are kinds of, um, so I think a good sort of psychological hypothesis about mystical experience is it's a very, some sort of very intense activation of the serotonergic signaling systems, right? Which is why you get it with the serotonergic psychedelics that bind to serotonin receptors in the brain. People don't have mystical experiences from smoking marijuana. May sometimes have them from taking uh, MDMA and dancing like at raves or something. Although those don't seem like the classical mystical experiences that James talks about. They seem to be a kind of a different sort of dissociative trance. Right. So, and also just the classical experiences from LSD or, or migraines. The, I mean, the depersonalization and derealization, it's dissociative, right? You've kind of unbound your ego from its inputs and, and mental processes. Now, so we, we started off talking about, <clears throat> I guess, migraine auras and also uh, different forms of psychedelic uh, mystical experiences. But there seem, there seem to be other, other ways there. Oftentimes what's associated with, with them is being out in nature. Oftentimes it can be when you're alone, you're in solitude. There are various ways in which it can be brought on. And mantras or certain religious uh, practices may help to, to or bring them on. I mean, what, is, what are your thoughts on other forms, non-psychedelic and non, not related to migraine auras, in which these events seem to take place? Yeah, I think that, right, they certainly can occur in other ways, but mostly, as far as I know, mostly those other ways are not very reliable. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, a migraine auras usually are not reliable, although you some people have... You, 
Yeah, you well, can't, you can't very, just start them whenever you want. <laughs> well, some people can, I was going to say, because they have definite oh, really? triggers. There are some people that have migraine triggers, and they can, they can start them, but it's never guaranteed. Hmm. If, you, if, you, if you take 500 micrograms of LSD, as many people have said, right, something's going to happen. Quite a lot, usually. Yeah, I mean, the, the nature thing is sort of interesting because it involves often peculiar stimulation of the visual system, which is, again, really connected to the serotonin thing. Like when people experience, so you see the sublime in nature, right? These vast expanses of space or time or even detail, right? Extreme, extremely intense presence of detail, so sometimes, and it's been, some people have talked about this, how a lot of these things, you're standing looking at the Grand Canyon or the Milky Way or something, mountain landscapes are often something that triggers the sublime. And what often happens there is a kind of vertigo. And certainly vertigo is associated with, with migraines as well, right? It's often, so there may be ways to trick the visual system, or there may be things that these nature experiences due to people that is that is disturbing their visual experience their visual systems in ways that then induce these disruptions in the in the serotonergic functioning of of the visual system and the other systems yeah right yeah and i guess the study of these states is is still in a sense young we don't really know what's going on with these states or why exactly they they're, they're happening much like most cognition it's still we're still figuring out what's going on in our in our brains that creates experience at all i think you're you've you've made the point well and i think that it's important to remember that these sorts of experiences are psychological events that they oftentimes throughout the course of history and in many religious traditions they're they're intensely emotional intensely important events for people mystics write about them whole stories and mythologies are are created around them but they they don't necessarily they don't necessarily have to be entwined with a supernatural interpretation and more and more it's becoming apparent that the kind of world belief that you have if you are an atheist, for example, or, or, or a Christian or a Buddhist, that will influence how you interpret the event that you, or the experience that you have. William James pointed out that uh, a Christian doesn't see the Buddha when he has a mystical experience, a Buddhist doesn't see uh, Krishna, and a Hindu doesn't see the Mother Mary. They all see uh, or experience these events within the symbols and the stories that, that they exist within. Yeah, I think that that's 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 very correct. That's that's very right. Probably the experiences, immediate, immediate raw phenomenal experiences, are pretty common across cultures and times and places. Then you get the written interpretations of the experiences. For a while, you know, there was this thing with W. T. Stace and some other people, John Hick, that sort of posited, you know, a mystical core to all religions. And that's almost certainly false, because mystical experiences are too rare. They're too, they don't generalize to other people. Like if I try to tell somebody that I had this experience, I mean, it's sort of self-refuting, right, to say that mystical experience is ineffable 
oh, but it's also the foundation of like a whole religion. Because then you would have to be like <laughs> telling everyone about what this experience is and what it means, and they would have to be able to share it. Right, right. It's one of the the little paradoxes, you know. And and many people do describe them, but they they always say. Actually, I have a quote here from from Alfred Lloyd Tennyson, the poet, that I think really does a good job of illustrating this paradox. He says, you know. When I was a boy, when I was walking alone, I would come upon a place, and I would repeat to myself my own name in silence, until all at once, as it were, out of the intensity of the consciousness of individuality, individuality itself seemed to dissolve and fade away into boundless being. And this was not a confused state, but the clearest, the surest of surest, utterly beyond words where death was almost a laughable impossibility, the loss of personality, if so it were, seeming no extinction, but the only true life. I am ashamed of my feeble description. Have I not said that the state is utterly beyond words? <laughs> yeah, but he's talking about it. Ineffable is an old joke, right? An ineffable experience is one that people don't shut up about. Yeah, and and but some some people some people do have these experiences, and they and they actually don't talk about them. For many times, people don't realize this important event is actually one that many people have have experienced and and share, but they don't always express it. Yeah, I mean that's true too. I think that the the experiences are really are really common. The interpretation obviously is a really different thing. I am always, I mean, there's a lot of complexity here, right? So in ego death, it's like, well, actually people remember that they had the experience. It's not like getting hit over the head with a bat where you're knocked out and you don't remember it. Yeah, usually you remember, in mystical experiences, you almost remember everything. You remember it with extreme clarity, usually. There's not a, a kind of memory loss. Right, so you can say, like, apparently paradoxical things like, I... I lost my ego, or my ego disappeared. It's like, well, if your ego actually disappeared, you wouldn't be able to tell me about it. You know, so there's there's a weird... And, and people, there are, there are some people who've done some really good... And we can maybe talk about that a little later. Some really good work on the study of psychedelics and the kind of experiences they induce. Because they can really be studied because they're, they're repeatable. Yeah. And you can put somebody's head in a brain scanner and cause them to have ego death, right? And you can sort of see what's going on, and, and they can describe it. But I think that the, the interpretation is an, an interesting point, because a lot of, for the longest time, right, people did not have, uh, or you're a Christian, and you think God is everywhere, and et cetera, et cetera, God, 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 and you have these experiences, well, that's going to be the first thing you reach for on the shelf, Right. right. And there it is. And you reach for it and you say, well, God caused this, or this was an experience of God. It's about God. And how could it not be? It was so immensely intense and transformative. Right. Although it's a, it's, there's, there's strange things about it because people have other intense experiences like orgasms that they often don't refer to God. You know, I mean, sometimes people do, but usually they don't think God caused these experiences or other kinds of intense types of joy or pain. So, so why it gets, there's still some questions there, but, but one of the things I think that's really important there is when it does get referred to God like that, you, and, and people have said the same thing about like, oh, 
why are there complex organisms on Earth? Well, God, God designed them. And that just shuts down any further explanation or, or understanding or analysis of the, of the phenomenon, right? Uh, I think if you want to learn about mystical experience, the last person you turn to is a religious mystic. They don't have, they are, you are not going to learn anything about mysticism from a religious mystic, except what their religion is. If you, if you ask a Christian mystic, whoa, whoa, you're mystic, you have mystical experiences, you're just going to get a sermon on, on the boundless magnificence of God, which you could have got without the mysticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess what, what is really a way of, of looking at mysticism in, I think, a fruitful and academic way is looking across cultures and across religions, right? You know, everybody's going to interpret and explain these experiences through their own lens. But maybe what do these different experiences and descriptions have in common that is maybe the most elucidating thing? And, and so I want to uh, transition to talking about atheistic mystical experience, because what do you, how do you interpret these experiences when you don't have a religious or metaphysical framework in which, you know, there is, there are gods and forces and all of this religious infrastructure and, and vocabulary to talk about these things with? You've written an article in which you outline several atheists and atheistic mystical experiences what are some of the patterns that you've noticed? Yeah, so I'm so this is something that I'm you know still working on because I'm I'm just very interested in the topic. But and we don't you're not going to have till sort of the the end of the the nineteenth century atheists who are out and out atheists who say I had a mystical experience. Right, that would be a very dangerous thing to say for most of human history. So it's really, I mean, around the time of, say, this is probably an arbitrary place to start, but the first one that I can really document who's an atheist and who has mystical experiences is Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, who also has, has migraines and probably has, probably has a, a brain cancer. I heard that that's how some people think that he actually died. It wasn't through syphilis, but it was actually through an undiagnosed brain cancer. Right. I mean, he certainly did not die of syphilis, right? Nobody, nobody, no prognosis of syphilis develops the way Nietzsche did. And we actually also know that this was, we can actually date, and I don't have the reference with me, but we actually know who started this rumor. It was the... It was a rumor. It was a a character assassination, really. Right. So it was people in the early Communist Party in Germany. Right, who started this rumor that Nietzsche Nietzsche had syphilis? I mean, the the other hand, he was probably a virgin, right? So, no no syphilis for for him, but he so he had he had probably some form of brain cancer. He certainly had migraines, and but he had these experiences. Now he interpreted them, of course, and one of them is most famous that he wrote down was about the eternal recurrence of the same, right? Where he he collapsed in ecstasy at this rock you can go visit it it's got a plaque on it you know in Sils Maria in in uh, the Alps and right near near there and this is the the Nietzsche rock and he the the eternal return of all things was revealed to him now now let's for those that don't know what that is let's let's go into what eternal return is uh, well, the return, eternal return of the same means every sort of thing, the universe sort of repeats itself over and over again infinitely. 
Yeah, and and he and he was he had this idea or this vision of what if what if a demon were to come to you and tell you like you everything you have lived you will have to live again exactly the same way, and and Nietzsche asks the question like if if you were to hear this would this be a horrible terrible thing to know that you'd have to live your whole life over again, forever, or is this something that you you could hear and say oh my God this is the best news because I love my life so much and experience so much. I would do it for eternity. And, uh, and it's really a kind of question that he asked himself and others. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I mean, Nietzsche's really channeling a lot of old Stoic themes there, right? Love of fate, amor fati, right? I mean, the, the eternal return of the same is not his idea. It's an old Stoic idea. Probably goes back to the Pythagoreans. But for the mystical experience side of it, right, this is sort of a transcendental idea. I mean, it's like something that transcends the universe in its magnitude, right? It's infinite, right? It's an infinite repetition. So, so in some sense, right, I mean, if you're starting to look at what's common even among religious mystics and somebody like Nietzsche, there's this sense of infinity, right? And something that transcends any finite structure of the, the world of appearances, Right. I mean, there are lots of there. Are, there are a bunch of others. If you start to look, I mean, Bertrand Russell had a profound mystical experience, which um, transformed him ethically in a really interesting way. Right. Go into that a little bit. Yeah, he talks about it in his in his autobiography. He had had once been a young man. I mean, he was from a very elite British family, right? His brother is, uh, his father was an Earl. He becomes Earl, Lord, Lord Earl Russell. And, and becomes a philosopher. Uh, very, very good one. Yes. Although intriguingly in his 97 some years, he only worked for like three years as a philosopher. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. He started out as, I mean, what do you do if you're from this noble, politically well-connected family? He started out as an ambassador and almost certainly a spy. He's a mathematician. He's not trained in philosophy. His, his academic work is mathematics. He does the Principia Mathematica. And then he can't get a job because he defended things like free love and, and all this. And he was opposed to the entry of Britain into World War I. He went to jail. Um, but, but the transformation itself was, I think, at the bedside of a, of a dying friend. Is that right? Yeah, so, so right. So back to that transformation, because in his early days, he was sort of very politically aloof. Even though he was very politically active, he was very politically conservative. He was in favor of British imperialism. He had certain views on certain British colonial wars that were pretty regressive. And then it was, I believe, Alfred North Whitehead's wife who was having a heart attack. And he, Russell had this mystical breakdown. And he says it was five minutes, and in, in that five minutes, his entire life was transformed. And he doesn't write much about the content, except he suddenly saw sort of the infinite loneliness of every human being. And that there was no way that there was only one thing could bridge this loneliness, and it was infinite love. And reality was infinite love. And, and then he, he becomes now politically active. Right, he starts all this very different way. Than- in a very different way, he starts all these utopian projects. That's when he starts. He opposes World War One. He goes to jail. 
he he becomes he's he's assaulted he's attacked and beaten up he's but he's he's heroic in his mission for this utopian politics right and and i think that example is also it elucidates something about mystical experiences that oftentimes they they have the potential to really change the person who has had them uh, and this goes back to what you were saying before that just because we may just because we may know or think we know how these experiences work on a you know chemical or psychological level it doesn't change the fact that they they they're important and they change us sometimes for the rest of our lives yeah I mean, I might, I would, I would be, I'm actually a little skeptical of, of, of that thesis. I mean, mm. if you look at most of the people who have these experiences often on a regular basis, they're, they're actually really not changed by it. Russell's yeah, yeah. kind of an exception. I mean, you know, and so Nietzsche's a philosopher and he's thinking about all these big philosophical ideas and that's what he does. And he has the eternal return of the same, which he knows very well. I mean, it's sort of a cheap trick. He knows all this stuff. He's a student of, he's a scholar of ancient philosophy. He knows the Stoics. Right. This is not some profound revelation. He's been teaching this stuff for like a, a decade. You know, you're, you're right I, there because there are two. There are some people that are that are changed profoundly and and for for years and years afterwards. And then at the same time, there are those uh, bliss junkies that uh, seek out, you know, these kinds of experiences through mushrooms, uh, magic mushrooms, LSD, uh, ayahuasca, trying to basically reach these these ecstatic uh, and high states, but that ultimately don't seem to really they don't seem to really be interested in changing themselves. They just like to get high. Right, right. You know, and Ramdas, who with Timothy Leary, he was experimenting with LSD and all these substances. He eventually became disillusioned with psychedelics because you would you always you always come back down to earth. And so he he wanted something that was more permanent. He wanted a change that was uh, lasting. And there's one line that I think really uh, embodies this. It's he says that it's not about a change of states. It's about a change of traits. Right. It's, a, it's about changing who you are. Right. It's about you know changing behavior patterns and habits and thing and values value structures. The mystical experiences, I think, for most people who've had them, they're they're so episodic and so intense. They're hard to integrate into some kind of ethical framework. The Christian, the Christian religious mystics, medieval mystics who had these experiences, or even if you go back to certainly uh, Plotinus, right, or Iamblichus, the Neoplatonists often cultivated mystical experience. They already have an ethical framework in which to fit the experiences, right? It's like, oh, the, the Christian mystic says, oh, it's about God, and therefore I love God even more, and I just go back to doing my, my Christian stuff. But what about what about an atheist who doesn't doesn't necessarily have that framework? Yeah, that's so that that is that is interesting, right? In the sense that Russell went to political idealism, Nietzsche articulated wanted to articulate an atheistic ethics, right? A kind of ethical way of life that doesn't involve God. There, I mean, there are lots of others. The way, and I, maybe I should I should say again a little. There are some people who it, it does change their life, like you said with Bertrand Russell. I'm thinking of Pierre Hadot. Because Pierre Hadot was a, was a Catholic, intensely Catholic young man. He was raised by his family basically to be a priest. He becomes a priest. He becomes ordained. His early life, the first three decades of the man's life are extraordinary. He's in France in the 30s and 40s, you know, World War II and all. 
all kinds of crazy stuff happens to him. But during his, as he's training for the priesthood, right, he is having mystical experiences which reveal to him that there is no God. Yeah, ironically. <laughs> and this, this distresses him enormously. He studies Plotinus thinking that he will learn to appreciate how mystical experience, I mean, maybe he just isn't getting it right, right, in his understanding of it, right? Maybe he's just, maybe he's going to study Plotinus, the Christian mystics. He writes a book on Plotinus and mysticism. He's writing about obscure Christian mystics. People are like, oh, Hado is like, wow, he's, he's, he's this genius on mysticism, not realizing that he's doing all of this because mystical experience is persistently revealing to him that no God exists. And it's got all those, you know, superlative things. Nature is infinite, boundless, eternal, bliss and love and transcendent joy and, and magic, and there's no God. <laughs> and this actually forces him to leave the priesthood. He becomes ordained as a priest, he serves for a few years, and he he has these experiences. And he just says, I can't deal with this anymore. And he becomes an atheist. Hmm. It's an interesting case, I think. I th yeah, there may be more cases like that. We just don't know, right? Because people often, for a long time, I think people felt sort of embarrassed or ashamed by these kinds of experiences, or they just interpreted them. The majority of people being sort of part of their culturally conventional religion, they just reached for what was immediately in front of them on the shelf that would be intelligible to their friends and family. And so like, it's like, I'm not crazy. I had an experience of God. Right. 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 And everybody says, oh, God, well, sure, of course you're not crazy. So they're able, they're able to integrate it. Yeah. Well, they can, make, they can fit it into a social framework and their, their friends aren't going to think, oh, they're, they're psychotic or something. Sure, sure. Like I was walking outside and suddenly I realized the infinite, the infinite transcendental bliss of, of pure being itself. And then I was consumed with, with light an unbearable, un unapproachable light within, within me, within all things. And then I saw the black sun, and it opened up in front of me, and it was ringed with holy fire. It's like, you know, Eric's clearly nuts in a, in a derogatory sense. This guy is unhinged. And, um, you know... This is like, no, uh, oh yeah, I have migraine. I have migraine with aura. And people are like, oh yeah, oh okay, sure. Well, I have that too. But it, what's important, again, is you, you had these experiences. Maybe it is a migraine aura, maybe it's something else. But it, it can still be profound and it could still stay with you. And for many months, many years after, can be something that you look back on as p potentially one of the most important experiences of your life. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, maybe some people do. I mean, I think if you experience them regularly, certainly I, I don't think of them as being, in fact, one of the things that I've sort of learned is to be really skeptical about my own mental experiences. I'm interested in analyzing them and trying to figure out what do they mean? Like, what is this experience about? Right? What, what is, what corresponds to the, what in reality corresponds to these states? And sort of so philosophically, yeah, it's they're important in that they provide some really unusual content. 
right, to reflect on. I mean, there are lots of other experiences that are like this, I think, that haven't gotten enough philosophical attention, right? I mean, philosophers haven't written much about hallucinations. They've written almost nothing on psychedelic drug experiences, although that's changing, right? That's starting to change. And when they did write some stuff about psychedelics in the 60s, it was, it was invariably just in this religious language that was just unquestioned, right? And so when you had people like W.T. Stace or Ram Dass or a few others who were writing about psychedelics, they, you know, the Good Friday experiment at Harvard or in Boston, they never even thought to ask any other questions about these. I mean, these were just automatically assumed to be experiences of the divine, right? You give LSD to a bunch or psilocybin to a bunch of divinity students, right? To see if they, on Good Friday, to see if they can experience the joyous resurrection of Jesus. You know, I think there, there was a recognition, at least, that... Th- there, there was a parallel, or these. This is the same realm of experience that many uh, religious people have talked about and written about in the past. It's, it's a question about language, right? Of, of perspective. That if you're uh, going to be talking about and studying these experiences, it's useful to have some language. And I think what they first grasped onto was were these old words that seemed to be talking about similar things, but with a metaphysics that was, well. Not, not necessarily scientific. Right. I think that, I mean, as, so as you get more recently, like with the psychedelic revival that's happened in, say, the last 10 or 15 years, and you also know more, we also know much more about the brain, right? And so people are now able to think about, well, what, what do the experiences mean? Philosophically, I'm interested in, like, well, what do they represent? We have, we've had certainly lots more work in, in philosophical analytic metaphysics that lets me think about a much wider range of objects in a kind of analytic and scientific way, a logical way, right? So I can, I mean, certainly if you have these kinds of experiences, you're almost certainly going to reach for extreme categories. So maybe if it's not God, it's like being itself or the platonic good or... There are all kinds of things that you can think of as being the reference or being the objects that these kinds of experience are about, right? Maybe maybe there is some infinite structure of reality that doesn't have anything to do with God, right? Sure. I mean, it could be a sure. completely natural structure. You could say like, oh, I, I realize that there are infinitely many, the multiverse is infinitely many possible worlds, and it's, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. It's not God, the fascinating thing that I find is this sense of awe and wonder is it, it, it's it's not diminished by not believing in a religion or or a god. Right, right. The god stuff is irrelevant. It's I mean it's actually just irrelevant to the interpretation. I mean you can interpret all the experience. You can get all the same meaning and value and significance out of it without any religious. In terms, I mean, theistic, right? Sort of Abrahamic theistic connotations at all. Today on Reenchantment, I want to tell you about something that is near and dear to my heart. Those who love me know that I love them back, but sometimes I prefer the company of the dead to the living. When I was young, I used to walk in the cemetery by my house, and when I come back home, I never fail to take another stroll. 
When you go out into a cemetery, you have time to think your largest thoughts. You have time to be alone among the trees and the beautiful greenery. You also have time to reflect upon your own coming demise, something that many philosophers have recommended. The Stoics said, Memento mori, remember death. And one of Martin Heidegger's students asked the existentialist philosopher, what is one thing that I can do to live a more authentic life? And he responded, spend more time in cemeteries. So this October season, find a nice big one, maybe the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, or the Mount Auburn Cemetery in Boston, or the catacombs in Paris. They're always nice this time of year. But wherever you go, take a moment to contemplate that you are not long for this world. As G.K. Chesterton said, one of the surest ways to learn to love something is to realize it can be lost. And now back to my conversation with Eric Steinhardt. You mentioned Arthur Kessler, the journalist who had the proof of Euclid's theorem. He had a mystical experience in, uh, when he was in prison. He was thrown into a Spanish prison in the Spanish Civil War. And he passed the time also to help him focus and not, not think about the fact that he was actually condemned to be shot. Right? And he had a piece of uh, metal that he found in his prison cell, and he would scratch into the walls of the cell mathematical proofs. He, was, he had studied math, he was interested in math, and he, he scrawled on the, the wall the proof of Euclid's theorem that there is no largest prime number, right? They're infinite. They're infinite. And he had a mystical experience where he suddenly experienced the infinity of mathematics, right? And, and that this was the, the true nature of the world, was this infinite mathematical structure. But he's an atheist, Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't believe there's any God or any divine mind behind any of this. Right? Well, he gets interviewed by, by Stace later, who does believe in all this divine mind, mystical core of all religions. And Stace tries to really pressure him on, like, well, don't you think there's some God behind it all? And he's like, you know, man, I just don't care. You know, it's like, that's not what, what I experienced. He's like, yeah, you could interpret it that way, but that's not what I experienced. I, but you have yeah. the, the theme of the infinite, right? Uh, Hado as well, right? Experienced this vast magnitude of nature. Alan Lightman, most recently, right? He wrote a book on his mystical, one of his, he had a mystical experience lying in a boat off the coast of an island in Maine. And he's, he's a scientist, right? Yeah, he's an a astronomer? scientist, astronomer, astrophysicist. He, he, he doesn't, I mean, it's a, his case is an interesting case because he doesn't really know what to do with the experience. He's an atheist, but he, he cannot think of any other way to talk about it except in, in God talk, which he doesn't like. And, and, and that's, I, I think his case is a great case of somebody who, if they had just had a better education in philosophy, they would have had a whole different range of concepts to use to talk about their experience. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a, a really good, c- coming back to what you said earlier, that when they first started studying psychedelics, they started using the language of religions. And I think uh, a case that I've made in the past is that religious traditions have had a monopoly on the language around spiritual experience, religious, mystical experience. And so for hundreds of years, that's, that's, all the, that's all the language that we've had to talk about this stuff outside of philosophy. 
in part. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. though, if you look at, I mean, one of the things I like to do, one of the things I do all the time, just even academically, is you realize like a lot of these concepts that we have that appear to come from Christianity. Christianity actually has, um, I'm going to just say this, and people can argue with me, but I'm going to stick stick to this. Christianity has almost no theology. <laughs> if you look at Christian theology, 99% of it comes from ancient paganism, Greek and Roman okay. paganism. You would be hard-pressed to find a single concept in Christianity that was not taken and Christianized from either the Stoics or the Platonists. You, you, I mean, you pick any kind of thing you want to... I mean, the, the Christian concept of God. This is a Neoplatonic concept, right? Many of the, many of the virtues came from the core Stoic virtues. That's right. Right. Oh, Christian ethics. Well, Christian ethics is just Stoic ethics. And, uh, I mean, it's not just Stoic ethics, right? There's, there's 2,000 years of elaboration of it. But... You don't, if you're actually going to look at the theology, like say like, oh, the, even, even the arguments for the existence of God, right? The design arguments, the cosmological arguments, the ontological arguments a little sketchy, right? Did the Stoics actually have the ontological argument? I mean, Cicero used, I mean, the language Anselm uses in presenting the ontological argument, God is that than which no greater can be conceived. That's actually taken verbatim from Cicero. And so it's like, yeah, yeah, you did, there's, there's, so if you go back, you know, you, one way to sort of de-Christianize the things is to go back to the ancient pagans. And say, so, well, like, they, they experienced the world in a different way, right? And so, sure, if we look at these atheists, right, who, and we want some other language, I mean, you can turn to Platonism, if you like, right, and talk about the form of the good or the one and wonder about what are those things, right? Do they really exist? Or the ground of being, being itself. I mean, Paul Tillich is like, oh, yeah, God, God is the ground of being. It's like, well, yes, Paul, you've taken a concept from Plotinus, right? And you're baptizing it, you're Christianizing it. But I don't have to be a Christian to talk about being itself, even in all the ways that you talk about it. Um, Not all the ways, because at some points, Tillich does say Christian things about it. But you don't have to. So, a one way to go. A lot people like Kessler, certainly Russell, Nietzsche. The, the theme of infinity is a theme that's really common to all these atheistic mystical experiences. Maybe that's the infinity of mathematics. Maybe it's the infinity of an endless cycle of universes. Maybe it's for Russell. It really is the infinity of of, of love. The infinity of the good. Yeah. And some other some other big names that so Albert Einstein had talked about the cosmic religious feeling that uh, one gets when contemplating the universe and uncovering uncovering the secrets of it. Carl Sagan talks about the these deep and uh, interpretations of the universe as revealed by science, astronomy. Neil deGrasse Tyson has this great line that there's many atoms in a single molecule of your DNA as there are stars in a typical galaxy. We are, each of us, a little universe. It's these grand, beautiful ideas that use science as kind of the, 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 the text, so to speak, the, the place from which these ideas come, but are interpreted in these really beautiful, poetic ways that give us a sense of, oh, wow, this is where we are in the universe. This is our place or our relation to it. Yeah, I don't think those guys 
I don't. I think those guys are just talking pretty. I don't think they had. Uh, you mentioned Einstein, Sagan, and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. As far as I know, none of them have ever claimed. Because Sagan is maybe an interesting case here, but he's he's cryptic. He's a he's a cryptic guy. None of those those guys, as far as I know, have written about having had mystical experiences. I guess what I'm talking about more is the their language around the these ideas in, has a lot of parallels with with mystical uh, experiences. It, yeah, but it's it's very tame. I mean, I will say that I will say that mystical experiences if you have these kinds of experiences they drive you to seek certain interpretations that are probably going to be more extreme than what you just find in say the empirical sciences. Right? I mean, Russell has mathematics, Nietzsche has this stoic metaphysics, Kessler has mathematics, and John McTaggart, he also had a complicated metaphysical system involving infinite love among an infinity of spirits, but he didn't believe in any god. He's actually explicitly an atheist, right? And he has mystical experiences all the time, right? Looking at the mountains, you know, and the veil drops away. I think it's one thing to say, like, nature is awe-inspiring, and it's another thing to be, like, on your hands and, the knee- and your knees in the woods screaming, holy, 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 you know, <laughs> you're just like right, a, a right. frenzied wolf that's just, you're not, oh, I mean, when I think of people who clearly, you, you, it drives you to deal with this shit. I mean, I think of yeah. of two people, sort of in the of, the of the four horsemen of the new atheists, right? Both Sam Harris, and almost certainly Richard Dawkins, had and were driven by mystical experiences. Yeah. Dawkins is a little bit cagey, but really not much. I mean, it seems like he had a profound mystical experience as a boy. I mean, he he writes about it in several places, and you kind of got to add up the different different pieces because he describes it several different times, you know, of, of being in this garden in Africa at night, uh, looking up at the Milky Way and smelling the flowers and weeping and breaking down, like having this transformative experience. And that seems to drive a lot of his, his kind of writing. I think it actually drives a lot of his atheism, Right, that you can't because, and he writes about this too. Right, there's the constant thing that he objects to in theism, is that it reduces, it takes something that's profound and beautiful and makes it petty and ugly. Right, you just say, oh, this God, and then you go to church and sing another hymn, and and it's like, no. In some ways, he ends up doing a kind of negative theology based on this mystical experience. That God, God, especially the Abrahamic God, is just an idol, I-D-O-L. It's just idolatry. And, and what nature reveals is something far more beautiful and far more profound. Mm-hmm. But this is not, this to my mind, when I, when I read Dawkins, which I have, is he's driven by something. He was driven by something to write The God Delusion. Right? He's driven by something in all these works, and, and he in my favorite, Unweaving the Rainbow, there's this constant way of saying, look, when you, when you anthropomorphize this, you humanize it, you project a god into it, you make it about going to church on Sunday and talking with the vicar or, or the priest or the rabbi or mullah or whoever, it's been, been cheapened and downgraded. Yeah, you, you lessen the full 
beauty and intensity right. of, of, of the world, of the universe, of the cosmos. And he, I, I think he's really driven by it, even though he's, he's sometimes pretty caught. He's not like Sam Harris, right? So Sam Harris... Right. He's much more open about his experiences with LSD and his, his interest in Buddhism is, and meditation is trying to develop, yeah, develop a, a secular spirituality Right towards mystical experience. Right, and certainly Sam Harris has, has had mystical experiences. He's open about them. He just, uh, what, like a year ago, did the episode on his podcast about eating uh, some some heroic dose of magic mushrooms. And sometimes Sam Sam Harris, as much as he is very concerned with being scientific, and he is, you know, legitimately so, he sometimes gets into this like wacky language about consciousness. Like I am, there's been a few things he's written or said about the consciousness is this e- eternal substance, substrate of being. Like I mean, he gets he gets. I mean, there are some times where you want to say like, you know, I maybe it's just the drugs, Sam. <laughs> 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 and I don't really want to dismiss it like that, right? But but sometimes you got to say like maybe you want to reflect a little bit about the fact that you had this experience because you ate five grams of psilocybin mushrooms, which really no one should ever do. And <laughs> you're, you're not, you're not a fan of the, the McKenna uh, dose. I am not a, I, I, I am not a fan of the McKenna dose. Yeah. I guess he got that idea from McKenna, right? McKenna said, Oh, you, you haven't really done it until you've F- five grams. You have to, you have to get us, get a scale, measure it out. Uh, and you have to be in a, a, alone in a in a dark room, and, <laughs> and then you're fully confronting the purity uh, of this of, of of the self and reality. Uh, for for anyone listening, please please don't try and do that. I mean, these are these are big big guns. We're talking about mystical experience primarily, the positive, overwhelming like you know awe of it. But there can also be, and there's. Uh, a lot of writing about the terror and the the horror of some of these experiences, and that can't be ignored. Right, um, for sure. It's for some people, and if, if you're going into very high levels of um, entheogen psychedelic use, they can be really, really traumatic, terrifying. Yeah, I think those experiences certainly certainly can be terrifying, right? And there's there's I think all these mystics, even these atheistic mystics, right, have you know, there's there's an, an edge to their writing where it seems like they realize that these these are potentially terrifying experiences or sometimes very much terrifying experiences for Hado, this experience that there is no god was simply terrifying to him he was going to have to tell his mother that he wasn't going to be a priest. He was going to have to like leave the priesthood. He, his whole life had been a lie. Right. And, and, and finally he was forced to sort of admit all this, right. Just because of these experiences, but lots of these others, right. Who, I mean, Bertrand Russell, sure. It was, this was traumatic experience. You know, Nietzsche writes about the terrifying, the terrifying dimension of these kinds of experiences, and certainly Alan Lightman, he was distressed by his, his experience, right? It was not fun. He, I mean, at the time, it felt this blissful, eternal, absolute bliss. Immediately afterwards, this was terrifying horror. Yeah, and I think, and I think that the advantage of 
having an experience like this within a tradition, uh, a religious tradition, is that, uh, as we talked about before, you have both cultural context in which to place this, but also you have the chance to integrate and kind of come to terms with what what has happened, in or or if it if it is terrifying in the moment, be, maybe saying like, no, this is this is I don't know the face of God that I'm seeing. This is this overwhelmingness in the if you don't have that tradition, if you're an atheist or a naturalist, we could benefit from more uh, more structure, more more of a more language, more talking about such experiences so that when people do have them yeah they have more of a more of a context and more of a way to to integrate them i think that that's slowly slowly happening i think that the the first thing is that naturalists have to sort of get away from the view that these things are merely psychological that they're just meaningless they're just you know meaningless brain farts or something and, well, you know, you can. You read a lot, of, a lot of naturalists are just very dismissive. It's like, well, something went wrong with your brain. And that's it. That's not helpful to anyone. And I think that that's not... One of the things that often, I think, does drive people or keeps people in religion, I, th- I think a lot of these experiences are far more common than is often it, it people don't talk about them or they don't want to. You can read... So, you know, Oliver Sacks' book on hallucinations is interesting because... It turns out that lots of people have lots of hallucinations all the time. Once you start to actually look, you find that human consciousness is a lot more unstable than people often say, right? And so just being dismissive of these things does not help naturalists to make a case for naturalism, right? And it obscures uh, a very real psychological phenomenon and reality that that is part of being human. It's part of being human, but I also think that these experiences are meaningful, uh, they're valuable, but it's not just, I mean, there again, a lot of naturalists will say, well, sure, they're valuable, but that's just a subjective, purely, so there's no objectivity to these experiences, right? They're not about anything real in the world. They're, they're important to you because your brain was really stressed out and yeah, you got a big spike of serotonin and that distressed your brain, but, but that's just subjective. Right? It doesn't reveal anything about the world. It doesn't tell you how much a proton weighs or anything about the center of, like, what did I see? I saw the black sun. I saw a black hole opening. But it doesn't tell me anything about, about the thermodynamics of black holes in the center of galaxies. It's, it's sure. meaningless. But the way that I, I look at it is it, it does tell us something, but not about necessarily the – it's less about the external universe and more about the internal universe. It helps us to understand our subconscious and ourselves, first and foremost. Yeah, I think it's about the external universe. You do? Okay, Absolutely. all right, make, make, make the case, make the case. Absolutely. I think if you have these kinds of experiences, you're going to be driven to try to think about the right kind of categories to understand them, right? Somebody like me, I mean, or somebody like, you know, Kessler or Bertrand Russell, right? We're, we're going to be driven towards kind of Platonism, to, to a kind of mathematical way of understanding structure and the infinite richness of reality, right? The sublime and the beautiful in terms of, again, ultimate reality. So you have, you have somebody like Max Tegmark who thinks reality is ultimately purely mathematics, right? I mean, he's, he's obviously not the first to have said something like that. But you're going to be driven to think 
certainly that the material universe is not all there is. And I have to I have to very very say that very cautiously because I don't believe in in, in any immaterial minds, mm-hmm. right? So what's what's not material is space, time. If there's a multiverse, there's lots of things. You know, matter is just what's in the standard model of matter. That's very very sure, narrow. Sure. But you're also going to be led to think about so like numbers. I don't think numbers are material, but you're going to be led to try to think about structure of the structure of reality um the, you know, the patterns that patterns, exist right the patterns that exist you're going to be led to aesthetic qualities like beauty and the sublime and you you find this in Dawkins for instance people often say like these these absurd things about Dawkins because they don't read him because he's a celebrity so why do you need to read him and he talks about the holy and the sacred and a lot of people are surprised by that yeah and it's and he says he has a pro- he is he is ultimately a, he is a rationalist. Mm-hmm. He says repeatedly across many decades. He says at one point he says I have profound faith in the rationality of existence. And it is a faith. It's a faith. I mean, but th- this guy is into pure reason, and pure reason, right, is going to be much deeper than just empirical science, right? I mean, empirical science is using, you use perception to study a substructure of the rational structure of the world. Because there's no reason to think that all that structure is accessible through perception. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're at a very limited place in space and time, right? If we existed, like, not actually very long from now, right? The idea that there are other galaxies would be, would be, not, a, would be not empirically testable, because all the other galaxies are running away from each other, right, faster than the speed of light, the universe expanding. And so there will be a point not long in the future where no other galaxies will be observable from Earth. They'll exist, but they're not going to be observable. So the observable substructure of the world, right, a lot of naturalists think that all that exists is the observable substructure of the world. And if you think that, I don't think you're going to be able to handle mystical experience, right? You know, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I agree with you that the, the world is more than just the material, uh, because as, you, as we pointed out, something like a, a, a thought is, is not a physical thing, but it is a pattern of, of, of electrons that is moving. It doesn't have necessarily a physical quality. And there are patterns throughout the cosmos the, that, that we see that are not necessarily... You can't necessarily touch them. But in terms of the question of like what mystical experience reveals to us, my intuition on this so far has been that the experience itself is is one of a self-knowledge, that it reveals internal internal truths in the case of psychedelic experiences. Those who have minds that are very good at mathematics or good at certain kind of actions like building, you know, architectural design, for example, they're able to think about their craft, think about this area of knowledge in a more fluid, more creative way. Uh, that's why a lot of artists, uh, you know, are, and now more and more tech tech CEOs or whatnot are, are driven to to use psychedelics to find creative ways of recognizing these these patterns that exist in the world, and coming up with new solutions. But I guess where where this exists and where all this happens, and may, maybe you agree, it happens within us, within the structures that already exist within our minds. 
Well, yeah, I mean, in, in part I agree, but in part I'm going to push, push back on that a little bit. I mean, yeah, there's stuff happening in your brain, right? But I can, I can listen to Harris or read Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or certainly Nietzsche or Hadot, right? And even Bertrand Russell and be like, yeah, they, they know the thing, right? And, and the thing is, you know, the, and sure, you're going to have to have language to talk about the thing, Right, but I know that Sam Harris. There's the thing, and he understands what the thing is, and so does Richard Dawkins and Pierre Hadot. These people, they 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 know the thing, and maybe you know, like Hildegard von Bingen or Plotinus, they knew the thing too. They had different ways of talking about it, but there is uh, a realization, right? That I think that I think if somebody's going to be honest about having these experiences, that you have knowledge. I think these experiences confer knowledge, right? And it's knowledge of external reality. Certainly a psychologist, people studying psychedelics now, they put you in the brain scanner, or you, or you have ego bliss, and they, they're like, oh, the default mode network shut down. Yay. Um, <laughs> Crack the champagne. Yeah, I mean, and so we get, it, we get another grant. Yay. But to have these experiences organically, even if you have them from, from taking drugs or you have them from migraines or you have them from whatever other means, you gain knowledge, right? You gain knowledge about the world, knowledge about nature, knowledge about the structure of being. You gain knowledge about existence. And in, in some sense, I would say ultimately these experiences are about the unsurpassability of existence. Existence is wild and it has a wildness that exceeds right? It exceeds everything. It exceeds itself in a way that makes it just kind of crazy. That's kind of the wildness to it that, I mean, you can feel almost if you read Dawkins on his boyhood experiences, which may have been repeated later in life. He's a little sketchy. I mean, he's in conversation with Alan Lightman, right? He criticizes Lightman for not being, not being true to, his, to the mystical experience that he had, do you remember what he said exactly? He said, yeah, Lightman goes on about, oh, this is so transcendental, and you, Richard Dawkins, you don't get it all because you just think it's nature and matter in motion. And, and, and Dawkins' first words in his reply, they have a sort of a debate. Dawkins says, you can't out-transcendence me. <laughs> and he just basically like condemns Lightman for not fully appreciating the profundity of his experience, of Lightman's own experience. He says, you, you take this experience and you've wrapped it up in a little box and you want to put it away in the corner and you want to, you know, you are not appreciating how disruptive this experience is and how, what it, and it, that it gives you knowledge. And the knowledge that it gives you is terrifying. Right? I mean, it's ecstatic. It's ecstatic in the sense of being outside yourself. It's also ecstatic in the sense of this extraordinary joy and bliss. But it's also, I mean, lots of the medieval mystics, they, had a, they, they went to hell, right? They did not see God. Sure. In their, in their, in their mystical experience, they went down into the, into the pits. Now, yeah, it's a whole other episode uh, we could do about 
maybe the quality of of this knowledge or or whether or not this this is something that you know in the case of Nietzsche as you pointed out is something you maybe already know but it becomes real in this moment it becomes so undeniably real that it, it feels like a kind of revelation yeah they're it's, revelatory experiences they reveal I mean, look, I saw the black sun, man. I'm going to talk about that, and I'm going to... So, I need categories, and I'll say, look, okay. I mean, I think Heidegger had mystical experiences. As far as I know, he never writes about it. There's a lot of Heidegger I haven't read, a lot that I have. But when he talks about, you know, the nothing nothings, you're like, yeah, this guy, he was there. He was down on his knees in the woods, like, screaming absurdities. He, 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 he saw the yeah. thing. Or the non-thing, yeah. you know? So people do try to come up with categories and language to talk about it. They do. They do. And I think, I think it's important that we do. And I think it's important we have more conversations like, like this one, trying to, I guess, normalize the, and let people know that these states exist and they're incredibly important. We shouldn't, we shouldn't look at them as experiences of madness or psychosis, but really um, talk about them and celebrate them for what they are. Well, Eric, I want to move on to the last little bit here. Okay. Uh, I like to ask guests to come up with uh, a word or concept for the athesaurus, the atheistic thesaurus. Uh, we've talked a lot about the difficulty of uh, language to describe some of these <clears throat> states that we've been talking about. Do you have any, any word that you've, you can either make it up, bring it in from another language, or something to help non-believers, naturalists, talk about these things without relying on religiously loaded terms? Yeah, I think that's a great thing to think about. I think that certainly philosophically, I struggle with that a lot, the absence of good language. So I'm always looking for more than just one word. I'm also looking for vast dictionaries of words that don't exist. Well, how about, yeah, what's, what's one, one of those terms? Yeah, one one term that so there's a, so there's a thing like saying like oh do does the universe strive to maximize entropy, right? And and actually Clausewitz who writes about this he he actually uses the in German not English but he says strive strives, and there are other people who said well that's a terrible word the universe doesn't have free will or something and so. One of the words that I like to use instead is uh, M-O-I-L, moil. 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 Where's that from? Moil is from Old English. And in fact, it probably was used a bit even 100 or 200 years ago. So moil is actually like toil, Mm. right? So moiling was sort of the kind of often rote sorts of laborious behaviors like a person who's digging a ditch. Mm, so you don't have to you don't have to consciously think about it. It's something your body's just kind of doing. Doing a repetitive, cyclical kind of it it is directed towards an end, a finality, but you're not necessarily thinking about like this in a purposive way. You're just putting your shovel in and digging out another shovel full of dirt and throwing it over the side. This can apply to the universe or, I don't know, evolution? Evolution. Yeah, evolution moils to increase complexity, right? The universe moils to maximize entropy, right? It doesn't, you know, if if striving sounds too psychological, then don't say striving, say moil. It moils. 
Excellent. Oh, I like that. I like that. All right. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it was a pleasure talking. We covered a lot of ground. Yes. Let's get together, hopefully sometime soon, to talk about Believing in Dawkins, your new book. Yes, I have a new book, Believing in Dawkins, The New Spiritual Atheism. So uh, it'd be wonderful to talk about that. Talk to you soon, Eric. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash reenchantment. By becoming a patron, you get your own personal shout-out, as well as patron-only content, like special videos and posts, or even whole bonus episodes from time to time. If money is not a way that you can support the show right now, please consider sharing an episode with somebody who might like it. Once again, thank you for listening. I'll see you next time on Reenchantment. Enchantment.